we are getting close to our, our journey through Hebrews. Um, we're in chapter 11 today. And this is kind of this is kind of the point in the Hebrews where where I usually try to get to early in the week, but I, I don't always make it there. It's what I like to think about landing the plane. So the the author has taken us through this whole journey for the past ten chapters of who Jesus is and how he fulfills all these different pictures, different things we've been seeing in the Old Testament. Uh, the past couple weeks, it's been really heavily focused on the law, right? Uh, Jesus is greater than the law. He does a bunch of things. He's greater than the laws. I think we've talked about his, the law's reconciliation, the law's promise, the law's sacrifice. I think last week we just said, period, he's better than the law. Right? All the stuff that, that God was pointing to in the law, Jesus is the one that actually does it. But now the author is going to start to land the plane. Right? Like it's a great journey, a great theological picture and argument that the author has been presenting. But the last three chapters of Hebrews really start to say, so what do we do with this? Right? Take it from up here and bring it down here for us, author. Let's, let's land this plane. And I love how chapter 10 kind of was this big summary that why Christ is the fulfillment, why is Jesus better than all of this, is because ultimately when God is at work making things right with him, you know, the, the big word we keep using in this book is reconciliation. When he's making things right with him, he does this through his person, not through his law. Right? He brings this to us through Jesus more than he does the, the kind of godly moral standard set before his people in the Old Testament law. And we end with this encouragement in verse 39 that says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have persevered or who, who have faith and preserve their souls. So the author says, like, we as the church are people in this story. Right, that God is not at work making us right with him simply by fulfilling some law obligation, but he's doing so in his person, in Jesus Christ. And I love that it's with that kind of idea in mind, we hit chapter 11, which some of you guys may be familiar with, we, we call the hall of faith. Right? It's all these things, all these people in the Old Testament, the heroes of the faith, all these wonderful things they've done. You can almost read it like, I don't know if you wanted to, like a comic book of like, here's the superhero doing that amazing thing. Then that hero does that amazing thing. Then that hero does that amazing thing. That's, that's the picture, though, that this comes in, right? The author has just said God makes his reconciliation available in a person, not a law. And then he goes through chapter 11, all these people that actually show this to us. So we're going to go through this this hall of faith today, and we're going to include, guys, the first two verses of chapter 12. So it's a little bit more scripture than I normally attempt to cover on a Sunday morning, but it's, it's a, big, a big thing the author is trying to show us today. The more I was reading it this week, I was like, I, I don't think I can just cut this off halfway through. So we're going to look at all of chapter 11 and the first two verses of chapter 12, and we're going to see the first kind of like, if you're can keeping the plane analogy going as he's, he's setting out the landing gear. He's beginning his descent. The first thing the author is kind of pointing to, if this is all true, right, that Jesus really is greater, he's the fulfillment of everything pointed to in the Old Testament, then the first thing that that really changes about us is our testimony, right? What do we say when we're talking about with other people? What do our lives ultimately reflect when we're engaging with culture, when we're engaging with others? What is our testimony? And the main thing we're going to see today, guys, Jesus is greater than the law's testimony. That God testifies his reconciliation through faith, not his law. Therefore, we testify faith in Christ, not God's law. So beginning in 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. It is by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. 
Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, him being God there. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of the sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, having not received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. It was by faith that Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, all of this, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. So this is speaking now to this early church, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race 
that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Lord, it is, um, sometimes it is a lot for us to take in, to take in all the history and all the background. Lord, I, I can imagine when the early church is, is receiving this letter, this, this sermon, whether it was from the author themselves or someone on their behalf, Lord, that they are, they're maybe a little bit overwhelmed with the number of examples over and over and over again, God seeing this is who you are. This is what you have always cared about. This is the work that you have always undertaken. Lord, over the past couple weeks, we have kind of seen our, our place in some of the similar struggles as this, this early church. Lord, we, we tend to sacrifice the life of faith for the life under the law. Father, we need to hear the same encouragement, the same reminders that your author of Hebrews was desperately pleading with their audience to understand. Why is Jesus so much better? Why is Jesus, Lord, not just better, but enough? Father, that you fulfilled your promises, you fulfilled who you said you were, you showed your deliverance, your salvation, your new life, God, you gave this to us in Christ. As we see how Jesus does this, Lord, may we trust that. May we, Father, just as your early church say, okay, that is enough for me too. In your name we pray, amen. So guys, the, I mean, I, as I was reading it, it's, I get that it's long. For some of you, it's, if you go to a museum and you're kind of walking through all displays, you, you hit a point where you're like, all right, I can only take in so much history. I, like all this stuff is cool, but I, I can only look at so many good works of art or famous documents from the past before we start to kind of tune it out. And so I love how the author of Hebrews just is like, nope, here's another one. Nope, here's another one. It just keeps going to prompt their audience to see, look, this is how God has worked all throughout history. This is the testimony that God has left his people with. And he, he shows us, our author of Hebrews says, look, this testimony is that God's reconciliation has come through faith not through the law. So to kind of walk through these examples, the first one we we're told is in verse 3. By faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God. And we, we are tempted to read that as, you know, like we hear word, we think literal word. Uh, just as the early church would have, you know, kind of defaulted more towards the word of God being the law, we're forgetting what John tells us that the word of God is Christ. That it is through Christ that the universe has been created. God's word was not his law, but his person, to borrow the language from last week. And he uses the phrase, look, things that are visible, referring to the law. It's, it's a reference the author of Hebrews has made a couple times. Right? When he talks about the law, he calls it the thing that is visible. But when he talks about Jesus or the promise or the mysteries of God, he calls those like the things that are invisible. So he says, look, what has been made, the universe, was not made out of things that are invisible. Not through the law, but through Jesus. Keeps the image going in verse 4, talking about Abel's sacrifice to Cain. Now I had to like, I had to really pare down my notes on this part. Because there's a whole sermon in Cain and Abel that we're just not going to get to dive into today. But we're told from Hebrews here that Abel's sacrifice was greater than Cain's, right? If you go back in Genesis 4, you realize God, he never asks Cain and Abel to bring him a sacrifice. It's assumed they do so because they, they're understanding they're not right with God. They want to be made right with God. And something about the heart that Abel brings his sacrifice to God in is different than Cain's. Which we get kind of in the following verses when Cain then goes and kills Abel out of jealousy, right? Cain's heart is not right. So God says something about your heart, Abel. I didn't ask you for a sacrifice. But because you have the heart that wants to be right with me, I can work with this. 
I can work with this. God accepted the sacrifice of the right heart more than he did of the right action, what we're using in our language here today, the right law, which is exactly what we see in Jesus. We're told in verse 5, Enoch, he shows up in Genesis 5. He pleased God because we're told in Genesis 5, he walked faithfully with God. So God was so delighted and pleased at how Enoch just walked faithfully with him that he took Enoch up to be with him before he actually passed away, right? Wild thing to try to comprehend. But the author of Hebrews is saying, no, it's, it's by faith. It, it wasn't that Enoch was some perfect keeper of the law. Remember, all these examples are coming in Genesis, guys. The law has not shown up yet. So he's like, the author is saying, look, people were capable of pleasing God to the point where he didn't even, he spared them from death. He just brought them up to be with him. That's how much they pleased God. Not because they were keepers of the law, but because of what was going on in their hearts. A similar example we see in Christ. We're told in verse 7 that Noah, as he's faithful to God, even when he didn't know what the future looks like, he builds an ark. He literally builds a place that life is going to be saved through when the judgment, the flood, comes. Is that not the same picture we see in Jesus, who builds a space for all of us to be made right with God, you know, according to the judgment of our sin, right? Same picture, same picture. Verses 8 through 10, now the author moves to Abraham. So he's just flying through the history. He says, through Abraham, God also built a space for his life to be preserved. Because Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Right? Abraham wasn't pleasing God because he was keeping the law. Again, the law has not come yet. But he was faithful to the covenant God set before when God shows up and says, if you will follow me, if I will be your God, then you will be my people. And it's out of this faithfulness to the covenant, the person of God through faith. Abraham is not only right, but Sarah. Sarah is right. Verses 11 and 12. It was Sarah's faithfulness to God's covenant that she's also able to give birth. Right? So all of these pictures in the Old Testament are, are showing God either creates life or preserves life through this faith that we have in him. Not through just keeping a law. And, and the author pauses in the midst of this in verses 13 to 16 to kind of give us some commentary. He says, look, all of these men and women did these things by faith, but they still hadn't received the promise yet. And at this point, church, the audience of Hebrews is going to agree. They're going to say, yes, of, of course they didn't receive the promise. The law had not come yet. Like, like, obviously, yes, these men and women were, were living by faith, but they were waiting for something greater to come. To the, the early Jewish mindset that this church is struggling with as it's starting to figure out what does it look like to follow Jesus in the face of suffering, they say, of course, the law is about to come. And now the author of Hebrews in the next section starts to give examples of saying, well, Let's look at the people who were living under the law. Let's, let's see, were they really waiting on the law? Were they testifying that what God is after is adherence to his law? Or is the testimony the exact same thing? That it is by faith in who God is, faith in God's person, which we're seeing now as Jesus, faith in Christ. Is that the testimony that God says, this is where my reconciliation work comes? So he continues. He goes to verse 17. Now, let's, let's go back to Abraham. Abraham was willing, up to offer, willing to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Right? And, and he recounts how Abraham knows. Look, all, God told me that it was going to be through my descendants that all this covenant blessing is going to come. And now God has asked me to sacrifice my only son. Right? It's not a faithfulness to a law. Abraham's saying, okay, God, I, I believe even if I give up my son to you, that you are still capable of fulfilling all of this. And Jesus, for us, fulfills that sacrifice as well. It is in the person of Jesus. We see the similar sacrifice to what Abraham 
was about to endure with Isaac. We're told in verses 20 through 22 that Abraham's sons passed on the covenant to the next family, to the next family. And I love how cool a picture that is. Because it doesn't say that Abraham sits down and writes out the code of now sons. These are all the things that you need to do in order to please God. And when, when you do these things over here, you're going to displease them. He's, he's not codifying a law to pass down. It just simply says the covenant is passed. Who they were is passed down from Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to his sons. God passing on his covenant through the family, through the, the people of God kind of like how he brings his covenant to us in his son, Jesus. Same picture, same picture at work. Verses 23 through 30, now we get to Moses. Moses, one of these big heroes, one of the ones who received the law and gave it to his people. What does Moses' example look like? It says, Moses did not choose to identify as the son of Pharaoh, right? When we went when we went through Exodus, guys, if you can remember all the way back to to last year, when we were going through Exodus, we talked about Pharaoh and Egypt as this, this kingdom of power, production, self. If we get the right things in place, we can do the right thing. We can make the right stuff happen. And it says Moses chose to not identify with that. Moses identified as a son, not of Pharaoh's daughter, not of Pharaoh, not of this lawful, legalistic kind of mindset, but as a son of Israel, of God's people. He wasn't afraid of the law, wasn't afraid of the anger of the king, didn't see the law as valuable to cling to, and then he leads Israel to do this too, just as we see in Christ. Verse 31, Rahab, and this may be my favorite example in here. Rahab is included, and the author reminds us she is a prostitute. If, if you're going to think about how God is choosing to bring his reconciliation to his people, Right? If it's a law-centric mentality, you, sh you certainly would find a better option to bring it to someone, to his people, than through a prostitute. Because in our, our, our law thinking, we say, how wrong is that lifestyle? Like, how could you choose to work through that? And here God says, maybe my reconciliation isn't coming through a law. Maybe... Maybe the testimony of my faith is I'm not choosing her because she's living what I would consider the moral lifestyle. Maybe I'm choosing her because she has the heart who's going to protect my people. It says Rahab did not perish with those who were disobedient because she gave a friendly welcome to the spies. She had the heart to preserve life. And I love how the author of Hebrews says, look, in all of these in our mindset, sterling examples, here's one that in a law kind of thinking would not fit. And yet the author of Hebrews says it is the same testimony and the same picture that Rahab is equally worthy and valuable in this story. Like How, how cool is that? That that is how our God is at work. Verse 32, I mean, the author just says, look, I know I'm, I'm probably giving y'all a ton. You were drinking out of a fire hose, so I'm not even going to go into all these other examples. But he lists a couple more. He says, look at all of these people who demonstrated faith in God. Not, not just an adherence to his law, but a faith in God. And it enabled men and women to live out these powerful testimonies of who God was. They saw God in action. They saw what he was doing. The author of Hebrews is, is taking every precaution to say, look, all these heroes from the Old Testament. This is not a testimony to what can be accomplished if we just get a godly moral standard in place for all of us to follow. So this is not God testifying, saying it's through a law that I am bringing reconciliation, righteousness, peace, my image to my creation. This is God's story, reconciling creation to creator through faith. And you've got people from 
every background imaginable in this story, God says, but they, that common thread was their faith. And with that, I was able to redeem my people. It's an impressive story. And again, kind of the, the big picture. So now the author of Hebrews is going to start landing the plane. That if God testifies his reconciliation through faith, not his law, that's what he expects of us too. So if you look down at verse 39, again, all of these, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. But now he says, verse 40, since God provided something better for us, right now he's brought the early church into this story for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So something the early church has that all these heroes in the Old Testament faith did not have, this now is the key. This now is what actually makes reconciliation possible. This is now what brings God's people to be right with him. And you think, well, then what did the early church have that the Old Testament did not? What was it pointing to? That would be Christ. The author says you have received something better in Christ. And I, I love, because I didn't get this the first time that I was reading through this this week, church. But the author, in telling them that they have something better, it, it made me think about how, like when my parents would explain something to me, and when I'm trying to explain things to our kids, it is really hard to explain to a child to wait for something better than to just not go pursue something that looks good enough right in front of you. Like one of, one of my daughter's favorite sayings is she'll just say, Daddy, it's really hard to wait. I'm like, truer words have never been spoken, Charlotte Jean. I know exactly between Abigail and I, I'm sure you guys can tell one of us is a little bit more patient and can wait a little bit more better than the other. So I definitely relate with Charlie when she says, Daddy, it is really hard to wait. And so church, it's not, in, it's not by accident that the author takes so much time to say, let's go through thousands of years, let's go through all the generations, all these stories you guys know, and see that this is really what God is after. But in doing so, he's also, or the author is also reminding the church, you need to be reminded of this because this is not your default. Like, it's a good thing for us in scripture. When you see the author saying the same thing over and over and over again, I didn't even count. Maybe one of you guys can. You can tell me how many times the phrase by faith shows up in this passage. Why would you have to be told 40 times by faith this happened by faith? Because our default is not faith. Our default is not living a testimony that says it's by faith and faith alone in Christ that I know God will make things right. God will make things right in my life. God will make things right in the way that I relate with others. That God will actually bring all of his creation, our world, back into his image. We, we sacrifice that better promise for the thing we think in front of us looks good. And in these examples, the author is, is telling his audience, you've also seen this piece to be true. It's not just that Jesus is better. We're also seeing what is our struggle. We forget this. Started thinking about, so these examples of Cain and Abel and Enoch, right at the beginning of Genesis, right? The authors is going to back to Genesis to show them, look, when God creates, what does he declare is in his image, church? Does he make a standard or a set of laws, does he bring down the tablets and say, this is what is in my image? He brings a person, Adam. And then he brings another person, Eve, and says, you are the representation of me to my creation. You guys have my image. You know, what, you know who I am. And yet, what does Satan do? He goes to them and says, okay, yes, God made you in his image. But if you really want to be like God, you know what you need? You need the knowledge of good and evil. That Satan says, look, you may think that you're good because you've been made in the image of God. But what you really need 
is the law. What you really need is the clear standard of this is what's right and this is what's wrong because that, Adam and Eve, is what God did not give you. That is the one piece God said, don't worry about that. That's not for you to have. When he declares them in my image, perfect, holy, good. Satan leads them to say, well, you were made to be people of faith. But if you really want to be like God, you're going to live like people under the law. And Adam and Eve sacrifice the life of faith for life under the law. Then you've got all these examples of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, all these, these pictures of people whom God is working through to bring reconciliation to his world after sin is introduced. And in all of this, you see the law only comes in a tiny snapshot, right? That when God is showing up, bringing reconciliation to his, his world, it's not through setting up the laws and the sacrifices, or he calls people, he calls families to be faithful to his image. And yet at some point along the line, God's people say, you know, the covenant's good, but what we really want is a king. We really want to be organized and to have this right and wrong upholder who'll go before us just like everybody else. And so God's people Say, God, we don't trust you to be our king. Give us a king. Give us a one who's going to uphold and create the law. After you, of course, God, it'll be under you. He'll be your king, but give us a king. And how'd that work? God was gracious, and he worked through several of the kings to point people to him. Certainly David. David being a, a, a good example. You've got Hezekiah. You've got a couple kings that really pointed Israel to God. But by and large, that was not the case. And the author of Hebrews is reminding his audience, look, you, you had a nation that was functioning as a, under a godly moral law, under a godly king. Even that could not bring reconciliation to the people. And the one other one I'll point out, and, and this is one that would have been very much on the mindset of the early church. In that 430-year period between Malachi's prophecy and Jesus coming in the New Testament, in that gap, there's a lot of, there's a lot of world powers coming into play, taking over God's people. And one of those... Rome shows up, and Persia is already on the scene. Persia has already conquered Jerusalem at this point. So Rome shows up, and Persia says, well, it's probably, rather than have all these massive bloody battles, because Rome is a massive empire, Persia, why don't, just give us peace, and you guys just, you know, we'll just pay you a bunch of taxes. We'll just pay you a ton of money, kind of a peaceful surrender. And so Rome and Persia both start to look at Jerusalem, and they see the temple. They see all the money and all the goods that come in as the Jewish people are living out their sacrificial system. And they say, I bet we could get our hands on that. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be powerful to say if we controlled their religion and their resources, that that would be a, a less bloody way of taking power. So Rome and Persia do this. And the Jews are outraged. So you get uh, the Maccabean revolution that takes place about... 100, 200 years before Jesus. So this, this is your more biblical history little bit for this morning. The Jews have a family, the Maccabees. They, they actually rise up and they succeed. Right? They defeat Rome. They throw them off. They set up what's called the Hasmonean dynasty. They, they set up. I mean, this is, it's just eerily similar to God's people doing the exact same thing with the kings in the Old Testament, they set up a new family, a new kingly leadership, a new structure of Old Testament law-following priest kings. And surprise, after about 100 years, the exact same thing happens with the Old Testament kings. The kings were wicked. It did not bring reconciliation. The kingdom grew weak. Rome got control back. 
So this, this historical pattern, right, as we're getting all these examples of what's happening by faith, the early church is receiving this from the author of Hebrews going, oh man, like you're having to tell us this because our story is not that. Our story is that that work of faith is not our default. I mean, it's fascinating that the author is just walking through this is reminding the people, look, there's been twice now that you guys have been so enamored with creating a godly moral law, thinking that that is going to bring reconciliation, peace, righteousness to your world. God let you do that twice and showed you how bad that failed. And all the early church was about to do it a third time. I, I didn't even pick up on this until I was talking with another one of my pastor friends uh, on Thursday this past week. But he says, look, when Jesus was about to be crucified, who were the Jews asking for? They were asking for Barabbas. And who was Barabbas? An insurrectionist. The Gospels tell us Barabbas was kind of thinking of doing the same thing he saw the Maccabees do, right? Like this, this story has been equally continuing in the people of God. That as much as we've had a testimony of God saying, it is by faith that my reconciliation and my righteousness comes to my people, we see his people saying, I don't really want that. What I really want is to set up this law instead. But yet the testimony, God says, look, even those under the law, all the law itself, all of this still God used to point to Jesus. Because he says, this is the real deal. This is where it comes in. And so if this is the testimony that God has given, and this is the struggle we have, this is where we come to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. This is why we can say, because we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, because this is the testimony that has gone before us that we are standing on today, let us also lay aside every weight. Let us follow the same example. Let, let's lay aside sin which clings so closely. Right? I'm not focusing so much on what the other people are doing wrong. I, sin is clinging to me. Let me lay aside that. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Guys, it is Christ who conquered sin, and brought transformation to God's spirit. It is Christ who has laid aside every weight, motivated to reconcile creation and creator together. It is Christ who has endured all things with joy to found and perfect our faith. It is Christ who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So this is our testimony, church. God says, if this is true, if Jesus is better, if God's reconciliation really has come through Christ, then what should the testimony of our lives be? What should we be striving for in all things? When people look at us, what, what should they hear is our heart's greatest desire? What should they see in our time, in our effort? What do our lives look like? We testify faith in Christ, not his law. Three questions to kind of help us think about some practical application with this. And then we'll be done. Last three questions. The first one is, do I want to see change in myself through faith or others in the law? I really, I was talking with John this week. And I was like, I feel like I'm coming down really hard on the law. And this is, this is where I really want to be careful in saying, the law itself was not a wicked thing. Right? Hebrews describes the law as a copy and a shadow of the things to come. That's not a bad thing. The law itself was not the problem. It was pointing to the real reconciliation to come. So you could almost think about it as it was a helpful tool that God used. But it was not his end goal. It was not what actually made the reconciliation happen. So I was thinking about this in context of how I'm at with my kids. 
because with Abigail and I, when we're parenting, right, it is good and proper if we want them to grow into the image of God, to help them with rules and with boundaries, to say, look, not everything is of God's image. And when they're really little, like one of our phrases we use with them is like, hey, when you do that, it's not showing loving kindness to someone, right? Like to tell them, hey, because we follow Jesus, we show loving kindness to others when they're three and when they're two, they're still picking up on what does loving kindness mean and look like. So it's good and proper for us to put some boundaries in place to say like, hey, biting someone is not showing loving kindness. Hey, whacking someone in the back of the head because they took the toy from you without asking, that is not showing loving kindness. Hey, when you asked your brother if he would share that with you instead of taking it for him, that is showing loving kindness. Like setting these boundaries in place is good and it is proper and it is helpful. It is a copy and a shadow of the heart we want them to have, right? It, it helps show them bits and pieces of what God is after. But if I say, well, if I just get all the right rules in place so I can get them to do all of the right things, then that will lead them to the heart of God. Now I'm in the same era that the early church was. Right now I'm getting to the point where I'm saying, okay, if I can get all of the right things like Charlie, I'm going to get you to perfectly not do these things. I'm going to get you to perfectly follow these things. That does not necessarily get the right heart in place. Because I was thinking, just from personal experience, I mean, how many of you had parents that set laws in place that you were like, really? Like, that applies, you know that that applies more to my sibling than that does to me. Like, are, are you really telling me that, like, it does not prompt in us a heart that says, oh, thank you. Thank you so much for caring about who I am. And out of love and respect to you, I'll follow that. I mean, we definitely had moments where we're like, no, I'm, I'm not following that one. Or I may follow it, but I'm going to let you know at every turn how much I know that this is really more about my brother than this is of me. So I'm just going to show you I really don't need this one, right? That the laws are helpful and they're clear. And with that in mind, I can see, like, what it, its appeal is. It's way easier for me to tell Charlie, don't do that, than it is for me to tell her, Charlie, we show loving kindness to people. And one of the ways that looks like is this. It's... One takes three words and exerts my power and place over her as a father. The other has to humble me a little bit to say, Charlie, you and I are both working towards the same thing. Here's something I've learned. Biting someone is not showing loving kindness. Right? One is way easier. But it does not do what we think it does. I mean, church, just to give you a very practical example for our church, right, this time last year, we started our community groups for the first time, and we introduced two. We had the one at our house, the one at the Bowman's house, and we, we, I talked with Carol, we worked to make our Sunday school class one of those, a Sunday morning community group, and we talked about wanting to start new ones over the course of the year, right? I shared with you all, and I'll say it again, I don't want us to just have community groups to have small group discipleship because we say that's the thing that makes disciples happen. We have seen small group discipleship in church be a good tool and a good method for discipleship to take place. But if y'all don't want to hang out together, making you go meet in people's houses is not going to do anything, right? We looked and said, you know what? Our church members spend a lot of time with each other in the course of the week. That is a beautiful thing. Let's, let's feed into that heart to say, look, that is a good thing you got. Let, let's just make it an intentional way of saying, hey, when you're spending time together, it doesn't have to be all of your time because you guys go do many things together. But let's say for an hour and a half a week, when you guys meet together, let's put a, a discipleship focus on it, right? The, that's what I'm trying to say, right? Right? When we have programs, when we have structures, when we set boundaries on things we want to try to do here at New River Fellowship, they're good, and they're helpful, and they help us move in a good direction. But we're not depending on those things to actually make us into the heart of Christ. It's not because we have small groups that you guys are suddenly more more like Christ in discipleship. It's because you guys have come together, you've cultivated a love for one another and a love for God. And the small groups is just one place where we just try to say like, hey, this is a really good thing. Let's keep this going. 
that's, that's what I'm after as your pastor. This is why three of our values when we are going through the vision series is sharing and experiencing God, transformational unity in Christ, and the image of God in us and others. Right? As we see where our hearts are and the things that we love and the people we want to spend our time with, like let's run to pursue these things in a Christ-like way. We can do that. But we start with this, that, that question, do I want to see change in myself through faith or others in the law? Am I willing to say, Lord, it is a longer, a more messy, a much less neat work for you to change my heart through faith than it is for me to lay down laws to change someone else. But what we're seeing in Hebrews is that faith work is the work God has always wanted to do. Second question, am I more aware of the brokenness of others or the brokenness in myself? The author, when he gets all the way down to chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, because we have this, this foundation, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance. It is a communal work. Right? It says we, we're doing this together, but it is an individual work. That I'm called to let God lay aside the weight of sin in my own life. I mean, think back to Jesus saying, take the speck out of your, the log out of your eye before the speck your brothers. Because I've realized it is exhausting to spend your time and your energy focused on what other people are doing wrong. There are days when I come to the church and I'm exhausted after doing a training session at Blacksburg Transit because it's exhausting pointing out to people how what they're driving is wrong. It's helped me change if I don't want to come here exhausted, then I have to change the way that I'm training somebody behind the bus. Like I know that there's unsafe behaviors I want you to not do, but I have to focus more on what am I trying to move you to then how am I just pointing out all the things that are wrong with what you're doing? Because it's exhausting to focus on the law. Because God, I mean, these examples show us God created life and he preserved life through Christ, not through the law. So to focus all of our time and attention on others in that law mentality, it's draining. Church, we don't need that. We do not need to be drained. Bob Goff phrases it like this in his question. He says, when something bothers me or stirs me up, it's easier to stay stirred up than to say, well, why did I get so stirred up about this? Why do I feel so strongly about that? And I've noticed in actually trying to apply that, like I, I end up way less exhausted at the end of the day when I say, okay, you know what, forget about what they did for a second. Why, like, why does that hurt me so much, Lord? Because it brings me into the presence of God, not saying, see, God, aren't we right and they're wrong on this? It brings me to say, okay, God, what do you need to do in me? I'm inviting the Spirit to do that work, that life-giving work in me. Am I more aware of the brokenness of others or the brokenness in myself? And the last question, do I await the future with joy or frustration? I find it fascinating, guys, that verse 2 says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That all these examples of the Old Testament, all because they knew they had this better promise coming. Like, there's no... There's moments where Abraham wrestles with God, but you don't really get a section where Abraham just says, God, why do you keep putting me through all of this? Why is this the hardest thing? God, look at, look at what the rest of the world is doing. Why can't you make my life better? I look at how much I'm trying to keep this covenant with you. You never see that heart in him. There are moments where he struggles. But it reminds me of the encouragement we saw in chapter 10 last week. The author tells us, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. <laughs> that was just an odd phrase. I hope we didn't blow past that last week, guys. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. 
as the way we think about our future is really going to determine what it looks like when we engage with people right here and right now. It is not a mistake that the author of Hebrews says, look, Jesus did this all with joy. This 40 verses of examples from Old Testament, they did this with joy. And yet here I am standing even further removed with thousands of years of the saints that have gone before me and I struggle with the joy. So do I await the future with joy or frustration? Because we are standing in the testimony of many families, many people, many men, many women who looked at their world around them and said, I've got a greater joy to work here. And I'm going to do it. So with this hope for today and tomorrow in mind, church, let's pray. O Christ, all thy ways of mercy tend to an end in my delight. Thou didst weep, sorrow, and suffer that I might rejoice. For my joy thou hast sent the comforter. You've multiplied thy promises. You've shown me my future happiness. You've given me a living fountain. Thou art preparing joy for me and preparing me for joy. Father, I pray for joy, wait for joy, long for joy. Give me more than I can hold, desire, or think of. Measure out to me my times and degrees of joy at my work, at my business, in my duties. If I weep at night, give me joy in the morning. Let me rest in the thought of thy love, pardon for sin, my title to heaven, my future unspotted state. I am an unworthy recipient of thy grace. Father, I often disesteem thy blood and slight thy love, but I can in repentance draw water from the wells of thy joyous forgiveness. Lord, let my heart leap towards the eternal Sabbath, where the work of redemption, sanctification, preservation, glorification is finished and perfected forever, where thou wilt rejoice over me with joy. There is no joy like the joy of heaven, Lord, for in that state are no sad divisions, no unchristian quarrels, no contentions, no evil designs, no weariness, no hunger, no cold, no sadness, no sin, no suffering, no persecutions, no toils of duty, none of this, Father in the joy of heaven. O healthful place where none are sick. O happy land where all are kings. O holy assembly where all are priests. Bring me speedily to the land of joy today, Father.